ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. I'm a humanities instructor and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Today, I'm joined on the show by Tom Darren, and we are going to be discussing Venezuela, the Venezuelan political situation, economics, and uh, Tom's background there, all as part of, uh, cons- of helping people prepare for the January Public Forum Resolution, which is all about uh, whether or not the United States should continue applying economic sanctions to Venezuela. Tom Darinlisky has spent nearly a decade working as a journalist in Venezuela, Argentina, and Brazil. He's a graduate of the University of Southern Mississippi. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in the Crime Factory, Driftwood Press, Mount Island, Burnside Writers Collective, Sassafras Literary Magazines, and BioStories, among others. Uh, Tom is also a photojournalist. His photographs have been published in Hobo Camp Review, Roadside Fiction, Blue Hour Magazine, Synthesia Literary Journal, and Midwestern Gothic. Uh, He lives in Texas, where he tells his children that he has done worse things for less money. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the program. Yeah, no, uh, thanks for giving a chance to talk uh, about Venezuela. It's a a country so close to to my heart. That's how I first learned Spanish, so... Oh, much really? to my wife's chagrin, who's from, yeah, much to my wife's chagrin sometimes. She's from Argentina, and so the uh, accents between Venezuela and Argentina are very different, and so I uh, sometimes inadvertently slip into my Venezuelan accent. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. When, when were you first in Venezuela? And so I graduated in May 1994, and, um, you know, just coming out of, you know, college with a uh, degree in English, you know, it's like everyone spoke English in America, so I didn't know what to do, and so I had an opportunity to go to Venezuela and stay with some friends of mine, their family, and so the day after I graduated, I had like 150 bucks and went down there, (laughs) and uh, that's kind of how I landed in Venezuela, lost my ticket home, in fact, and so started teaching English, where not many people spoke English and stuff like that, so it worked worked out really well. Oh, wow. How long did you teach English down there? I taught English for about a year, and then uh, I slipped, and I kind of kind of slipped into journalism by accident. There was a, there was an English daily newspaper, and, uh, and so I taught English, and it was fun, great to meet some people, you know. And, and Venezuela was a country at that time; a lot of people didn't speak English, and so it really forced me to learn Spanish, and it really forced me to to learn and understand the culture. And, uh, but, you know, I, I picked up a job at this English language daily down there, um, doing copy editing and layout and stuff like that, and kind of came into journalism through, through that back door. That's fascinating. I, I know my, my high school students often have uh, very specifically laid out dreams of where they want to go. And one of the things I try to remind them rather frequently is that they cannot correctly predict the future. So they need to study things that they're interested in and they enjoy doing. But don't assume that you're definitely going to get a job in this field as a very precisely trained physical therapist. You have no idea where life's going to take you 15, 20 years from now. Um, exactly, exactly. And you know, when I was in college, I actually flunked out of journalism. And so my teacher, a teacher offered me a C if I promised never to take another journalism class. And I thought, man, this is the easiest C I'm ever going to get. So I said, of course, I'll take it. That's you know. amazing. I, I I had a very gracious Greek professor who made me a similar deal. She's a, she told me, and you deserve to fail this class, but I will give you a C plus, which means you cannot take Greek two hundred one, <laughs> but it's the <laughs> highest grade I can give you that will lock you out of the rest of the program. <laughs> so, uh, well. 
Tom, help us with a little bit of uh, the, the background of Venezuela. I, I was reading through some of the articles that you sent me, and uh, I know if our, our listeners have, if they've listened to our previous episode on Venezuela, they've, they're probably familiar some with uh, Chavez and Maduro and Guaido. Um, but kind of walk us through some of the, the more recent history of Venezuela, uh, particularly if you could with focus on uh, did, did, did Venice did this crisis was it hap- did some outside force cause Venezuela to become this amazingly impoverished country or have they really done that to themselves what what are your thoughts on that you know it, it's, it's just one of the greatest ironies I, I believe in sort of the western hemisphere what's happened to Venezuela you know just to put it in perspective back in the 70s when Chile was under dictatorship Brazil was under dictatorship Argentina was under a dictatorship. And even in Europe, when the Iberian Peninsula with Spain and Portugal, to a certain extent, suffered under dictatorships, Venezuela was really the only democracy in Latin America uh, that was a functioning democracy um, because of its oil and gas reserves, its massive gold deposits. The country had, you know, a pretty relatively strong were middle class, you know, compared to, say, like other Latin countries, right, which suffered under dire dire poverty, right? But the problem with Venezuela really, before Chavez, was that despite the prosperity, despite its massive amount, I mean, it's got bigger oil and gas reserves than Saudi Arabia. It's got gold deposits that would have the Chinese, well, it actually does have the Chinese and the Russians mouthwatering over them was corruption. I mean, it was a country that was divvied up by two political parties, AD and Cope, right? And so there was an accord, sort of like in mid-century, called Punto Fijo, where the parties essentially decided to kind of sort of split ownership of Venezuela's political landscape, which, oddly enough, I mean, I mean, you know, we've got the same situation where with two parties, right? I mean, there's no accord to split ownership of the American economy and ownership sure. of the American wealth, but still just the idea of two parties essentially going back and forth between power. And so that, in my opinion, left a lot of room for corruption because you had prosperity, you had a strong middle class, you had a very, uh, a country that had a very sort of like dynamic entrepreneurial class because one of the things that helped Venezuela really in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was all this immigration from Spain and Portugal and Italy as well. People going to Venezuela looking for entrepreneurial uh, enterprises, whether it's, you know, it used to be a joke in, in Caracas, you know, the capital city that, you know, the Portuguese owned the bakeries, the Italians, the restaurants, and the Spaniards, and the Spaniards, all the other businesses, you know, which to a certain degree is true because, you know, they would go there work, you know, put in the sweat equity, have a little business, and uh, Venezuela operated pretty well that way, right? But I think just the fact of sort of like the corruption that arose out of having a two-party system that essentially divvied up the country, created a lot of room for corruption. And I think one of the things, when I, I got there in 94, and that was right about the time that Chavez, when he tried to do his coups a, a few years before I got there, he was released pretty much about the same time I got there. And there was a lot of public dissatisfaction with the, with, 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 with the current political system at that point. And that's one of the things that Chavez kind of tapped into that, that anger, that frustration. And it's the same thing that's happened here. It's the same thing that's happened in Brexit, that you, know, you have a core of people in the country, the electorate, who are just tired 
of it. And so Travis really took, took advantage of that, 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 that angst, that anger. So he really was that kind of charismatic figure who was effectively able to tap into a longstanding anger that people had against the status quo and use that to bring about a, a really a, a different uh, a, a different normal for, for Venezuela. Yeah, you know, because I mean, so you know, because of, you know, almost any company or, I'm sorry, any country that depends on uh, raw material exports, Venezuela into that, fell into that trap, right? So when oil prices were high, Venezuela grew. When oil prices collapsed, Venezuela suffered. And so, you know, one of the previous sort of like his, Chavez's big political foe at that time was a president named Carlos Andres Perez. And everyone calls him CAP because in Latin America, politicians love to go by acronyms. So CAP, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, there, there was some talk of, you know, Venezuela trying to get some multilateral loans and Venezuela, you know, uh, beholding to the IMF and other multilateral lenders to kind of get its economy in shape amid low oil prices. And so Chavez's first vents of the coup of, of trying to take power was really uh, an initial burst of nationalism because, you know, he saw it and the military officers saw it as that, you know, we should not be beholding to international lenders. You know, we're a country, we're our own self. It's, it's, it was very folkloric populism and, and really nationalism in the beginning. And that was the reaction against uh, the president that cap. And so that was sort of like what, what the background roots of, of Chavez was. And I think this was really before Chavez began toying with the idea, which, which is an aberration on his part, what he created. But this idea of this folkloric nationalism mixed with, you know, I wouldn't say socialism at that time, but the idea of community, of, of this sort of like, you know, homespun, quasi-democratic socialism. And so it kind of it kind of formed that way early in the days. And so, you know, and, and it was easy for him to, because 94, 95, you know, you had oil prices up and down like the roller coasters always, right? But, you know, the middle class started seeing their perspectives uh, dwindle, you know. Uh, the working class, the same situation, because once people stopped, once people stopped building apartment buildings, stopped building you know, factories and things like that, you know, that affected the working class. And so it was easy for Chavez to kind of like start, and he had to go to the street because once again, you know, the, the political climate and the landscape in Venezuela at that time was essentially a two-party rule, just switching back and forth. And so Chavez really had to go to like the street and he was able to talk to people on the street. And just because of just how crazy urban-wise Venezuela is, you know, the middle class were here this story. And so coupled with this incredibly fast rising crime rate, Chavez had an, a ready audience. And a lot of I mean the first time I saw him it was on their underpass in one of the hardest hard scrabble parts of the city talking. And he just knew how to talk to people. Huh. He knew how to talk to the common people and that's what captured their ears early on. Well, that, that's certainly a huge thing politically. I mean, I, I think that's been that that I, that in my mind is the biggest piece that Donald Trump nailed in the 2016 election was really being able to talk to the ordinary Americans that make up most of the country rather than just aiming his comments either at one particular ethnicity or at the educated elites who, who grew up in kind of Ivy League circuits. Uh, but that that ability to talk to the ordinary people becomes huge politically. 
Well, not exactly, exactly. Let's um, let, let's shift gears just a little bit because I, mean, I know uh, Chavez, of course, his his rule goes for for quite a while, and over the course, I think that's that's an interesting comparison that you've helped us with between moving from a, kind of an initial nationalism towards a democratic socialism, and of course, by time of his death, most of the major industries in Venezuela have been nationalized. If I understand this story correctly. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Every and yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, part of what I'd, uh, I I want to say, can we focus on some of the corruption that you mentioned? As I was reading the articles you sent me, uh, that seemed to be like a really that was really interesting. I think it's a piece that Americans looking at this, uh, particularly American high school students, are not terribly aware of just how much they assume that everyone around them is honest in terms of uh, security. Uh, business dealings and transportation, but those were that seemed to be even a bigger deal than the socialism, according in in your in your articles. So, could tell no. us some of the stories about the corruption that you witnessed while you were in Venezuela. No, exactly, and I, and I think you know rather than some 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 like you know hybrid political theory that did not capture the imagination of Venezuelans. It was the issue of crime early on, just because it was so prevalent prevalent from street robberies to official corruption, you know? Uh, for example, something as simple as um, um, getting paperwork done, right? So what you're saying in the U.S., you know, you got to get your license renewed. You go down to the DMV or whatever it is and do it, you know, 45 minutes at, at the most, right? Venezuela, you have to have everything done with an official government paper, right? The, the different sheet. It's very kind of part, it's called parchment, but it was an official government sheet, right? And you have to have government stamps, right? So do that, and theoretically it's free, right? But there's never anything there. They're out. But the guy working at the window knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who can get it for you for the price of a Coca-Cola. And so one of the things that surprised me, now, not, for example, in the state-run oil companies and the state-run energy companies at that time, because the people were educated, the managers were educated in London School of Economics, Harvard, you know, University of Texas, elsewhere abroad. They took back with them this idea of co- uh, corporate governance and transparency. And so in the really big companies at the time that were state-owned, you did not have that. But what baffled me so much was, I call it the petty corruption from officials asking, I, I can't do this, but if you get me, you know, I remember one time this guy asked me, I can't do this because I don't have this, but you know, I'm really thirsty and I'm hungry. I think if I had some food and something to drink, I could probably do it quicker, you know? And so you would deal with stuff like that, you know? And then the police, you know, in the 10 years, and I say this honestly, thank the Lord, thank Jesus Christ, I was never robbed. I was almost robbed once by a guy who was going to kill me if I didn't give me money, right? But the only time I was ever robbed in Latin America was by a Venezuelan police officer. And so the corruption was just so petty, but it was so widespread, right? And that was, to me, the most baffling thing. There was, I want to say there was a culture of corruption because uh, the Venezuelans at the core as a country are some of the nicest, friendliest, hospitable people you can ever meet. And they suffered under the corruption. And so they understood how frustrating it could be to do something as simple as getting medication or getting something done. And so, and, and the crime, 
and the crime. And because, you know, just how, how uh, hurly-burly Caracas is and how it was built, right? So you can almost see an architectural-wise, right? right? That when there's oil prices, buildings go up. Oil prices collapse, building stops, right? So you have these beautiful high-rise penthouses next to these shanty towns. And so that created an, a perfect environment. It was almost a little bit like that, that movie Escape from New York, right? That kind of environment that you could, you know, literally just go around the corner and be in dire poverty and very crime-ridden area of the city. And so that made it easier for thieves to get around. And, you know, and, and once again, you know, it was a situation with the political landscape that the government let people uh, build informally. You know, people, it happens a lot in Brazil too, right? So people go from the countryside to the cities. Um, uh, they built illegally on the, on the hills. The government lets power companies run power lines. They're more for votes than urban development, right? And so you have this really kind of weird situation where the city's perfect for crime. You can rob someone, run away in the, you know, in the, the streets of the shantytown, never get caught. And also at the same time, because the cops are so corrupt, it's easy to grab a cop, uh, to bribe a cop. If you get, you know, if you rob something, they catch you, you just bribe them and they let you go. Well, we couldn't find them, you know? And so it was, it was, in that sense, it was, it was, it was always baffling to me. I think the most uh, amazing story in the articles that you sent me was uh, the one about, um, I, I don't remember the name you had for it, but the, uh, the, the little mini buses that go throughout yeah, the Caracas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so, so they're like little, about the size of a food van, right? You know, I see these food trucks everywhere. I don't know if you're in North Carolina, but here in Texas, you got taco trucks everywhere, right? About the size of that. Very small, very cramped, and they have blasting salsa merengue music, right? And so it was really easy because they're cash-based, right? So they typically serve uh, people who work, you know, who come down from the shanty, shanty towns and the hills to work in the city, typically that, and university students, right? And so and I, had, I was just working at the paper, and I had to go lay out. So I was going in late Sunday morning. And, you know, this happens all the time. People would just jump on, grab the cash till, jump off. And, and, and speed away. But this guy jumped on, had a butcher knife, pulled it out, uh, grabbed a young kid. I, I, I think it was just like in the afternoon. And so like I said, story, a lot of people returning, both Catholic and uh, Pentecostal ladies at the back of the church, you know, returning from, from worship. And he was holding the, uh, the butcher knife to the kid's throat. And the bus driver didn't know what to do because he knew if he would stop, the guy would slit the kid's throat. And the kid was crying. The mother was freaking out. Everyone's freaking out in the bus. And uh, so people started throwing the rings and stuff like that, their money, picking them up. But, you know, it's a true story. I say this, people, you know, look at me with this very dubious look, look, but it was, you know, these old Pentecostal ladies in the back. They started rebuking him. And they started rebuking him and then, you know, rebuking Satan. And this guy just started freaking out. And he was saying, shut up, shut up, shut up. And they were just raising their hands and they were praying for the kid. And just saying, you know, you devil, you Satan, you get out of this, man. Get out of here. Get out. And the guy freaked out, left everything on the bus and jumped. And the bus had not slowed down. And he just, and the bus was going about 50 or 60 miles an hour. He jumped off and ran away. But, you know, everyone on the bus started clapping because I'd never seen anything like that. No one wow. else had ever seen like that, you know. And, you know, the, the, the kid was unsafe, I mean, unharmed, right? Uh, the mother was happy, it was, but you know that's just a little microcosm, microcosm of things. What what happened like that, and pretty much on that same 
bus route route not too not not too long after that there was a story of another criminal jumped on a bus robbing people and there was a 12 year old junior high student equivalent you know and uh, and all he had was like equivalent of about 10 cents to to give the kid the the, the robber and the robber says you know 10 cents you're not even you know worthy to, to be alive you're so broke and he killed him stabbed what? him you know so you know, just the level of cruelty in, in, in terms of crime was uh, it, it sometimes it just felt overpowering. Wow. I mean, and that, 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 in my mind, is one of the hardest things for, for students to kind of wrap their minds around because they, they go through they go throughout the day or at least the school year uh, in a place, no matter how bad different schools might be, the majority of students are in schools that are generally – ruled by some version of law and order and they can and then the the united states in general operates under that rule of law concept where we generally assume that tomorrow is going to look a bit like today and that the people we interact with they might deceive us but generally we assume honesty and we're not and we're we're safe to assume honesty in most circumstances but that just that that fascinates me to to imagine or to think about Venezuela as really being the opposite there because I I can't imagine running a business or uh, going through school if literally my trans if I was going to imagine getting around a major city an Uber but I have a fifty fifty chance of my Uber driver robbing from me instead of just taking me there I mean that's 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 amazing you know and and that's the thing it's like you know. I, it happens a little bit in Texas, right? Um, they call it sequestrados uh, um, express, uh, like express kidnappings. And so that was the thing that first developed in, in Venezuela. And it actually ended up spreading to other parts of Latin America. And was, because by the time I left uh, Venezuela and moved to Argentina, uh, Buenos Aires is, is like the Paris of South America. And it's a very safe, uh, prosperous city compared to other other places in the region. But you know the the you know the the express kidnappings right it became so prevalent in Venezuela they started spreading around and so essentially you know uh, you would um, um, just kidnap someone for twenty four hours call up the family and say hey give me you know two hundred dollars or you know and it's going to die and uh, and so there's actually a movie came out a few years ago about that kind of focuses on like that and uh, and it, it, you know most of the time. You know, the, the criminals would free you after they got a payment of something small, you know, a hundred bucks, 200 bucks. And, uh, they'd give you $10 for a taxi home and, and let you go. And, you know, it's spread around to the region. Right. And I think that's where, you know, and, and I say that level of crime was really, unfortunately, among the poor, the poorest mm-hmm. of the poor. Right. And so the poorest of the poor were abused by the criminals. The middle class were abused by the criminals. Uh, the educated class, you know, kids who go into college, kids going to high school, you know, just because you don't have school buses, you have to take public tra- transportation to school. They, they, they were the victims, and and I and and to sort of like to make it even worse is that you know what a society has in place to protect its citizens were just as predatory, the police, and so for your typical Venezuelan. No matter your social standing or your economic class, you were going to be robbed one way or another. Whether it's if you had to take your, you had to get 
a birth certificate or get a paper from the government. You had to go to the police or you got by the criminals or by the gangs that controlled the poor neighborhoods. It was just a constant drain on your finances. As you know, because you have, you know, the same way a little bit in Brazil, there's neighborhoods that are controlled by the gangs. You have to pay tariffs, fees, tolls, tolls, right? So, you know, you live up on the top of the hill, you go down, you go through different areas of the neighborhood controlled by different gangs. You got to pay, you know, 10 cents here, 20 cents there, a buck there, a buck here. You know, at the end of the day, it builds up. And then you got your transportation costs, and you got your food costs. And it's like just the drain, the, the black economy, just how it would suck people's livelihood and that would force more people to turn to crime not because they wanted to but it was a situation where you just couldn't afford to have a regular job so this becomes really a vicious cycle yes my goodness well let's yeah and uh, well let, let let's shift gears a little bit um because i think cause am i right in assuming that all of that everything you're describing was not just a problem of the 1990s but that that continues in venezuela today yeah and and this is where I think, you know, where if you look at the current situation of Venezuela, so it's a nation, if I'm, if I'm mistaken, forgive me, but I think it's 25 million inhabitants, uh, something like that. And about you have a, probably up to three to four million Venezuelans living outside the country now because of the situation. So Chavez, you know, tapped into that sort of civic and, and, and class fear of crime and dwindling prospects for a better life. And he tapped into that, and that's what helped him get elected, right? But um, th- two things happened, I think. At the same time that Chavez sort of like was elected, he came to power. Uh, the U.S., this was before 9-11, right? But I think, you know, the Bush administration had changed its focus because I think the Clintons and the first Bush administration – you know, had had a pretty decent uh, um, relationship with Latin America in terms of you know economic trade agreements, trying to work with the region. But just between the ascension of Chavez and, and the Bush administration, kind of changing focus away from Latin America to at one point dealing with the war on terror. You know, after nine mm-hmm. eleven, uh, there was a black hole, and so the Cubans really stepped in there. Right, so Chavez. Chavez was one of these leaders. He gets something in his head, and no matter what the facts were, he just thought it is this way. So at some point, he took a front to the Bush administration, and he wanted to develop a relationship with the Cubans. And so the Cubans – now, let me, let me go back, if you don't mind. Just So sure. when I was a journalist, right, so I started meeting like, these Cuban journalists in Venezuela a lot, just at cocktails and parties and stuff like that. And they were being sent by the official Cuban news agency to interview Chavez and to establish a relationship with Chavez, right? And so I think Castro at that time saw something. He saw an ally in Chavez. Even before Chavez won at the polls, he saw an ally. And so Chavez was not sort of like a flu, you know, full-blown socialist. He wasn't talking because the big state companies were already nationalized, right? So he wasn't talking sort of like the typical, you know, socialist saddle rattling, you know, we're going to take over the economy again and we're going to do this and that. But Castro saw not only Chavez, and so he established a relationship. And so, in fact, one of these spies actually saved me from uh, some woman was flirting with me at a, at a party and she was freaking me out and she was, she was crazy. And it was a Cuban spy who helped me out, you know, and, and he told this lady, no, Tom's brokenhearted, blah, blah, blah. And so when this Cuban became sort of like, 
got to know each other. And he was, you know, been in Angola before. He'd been on all these hotspots in Africa. And he was in Venezuela to, quote, unquote, interview Chavez. And so he interviewed Chavez a lot. So those ties were really established right before Chavez really took power. And so by the time Chavez became president, the Cubans were advising Chavez on how to spy domestically, how to spy on foreigners in the country, uh, uh, taking everything that the Castro regime had learned during the sanctions, the hard times of the, the sanctions and the special period, they passed that knowledge on to Chavez, who gleefully took it and applied it at home. But one of the problems you see right now with Venezuela is that Venezuela was never Cuba. Venezuela never had to go through a special period like the Cubans did during the sanction period, right? And so I'm not justifying that the, Cuba is a closed economy. It's a communist economy. There is no movement the freedom of movement, expressions of thought, things like that, right? So, but Chavez, you know, Venezuela was different. And so Chavez started applying that. And so, you know, he had a lot of Cuban advisors. Uh, he started uh, getting a lot of money from the Venezuela, uh, from, from the Chinese as he excluded foreign oil companies from uh, um, producing oil, not owning oil, but producing oil in Venezuela. He started getting more money from the Chinese to export that oil to China rather than, say, the U.S. and other places. And so you had all these little things kind of coming together little by little. And you just really had Chavez was delusional in terms of what Venezuela really was economically, what it was becoming, uh, uh, the crime rate. And so, you know, and it's the same uh, thing that the current Maduro government does, blames it on um, U.S. spies or blames it on foreign um, intervention. And so you had all these things kind of kind of slowly cooking up into a complete meltdown of what Venezuela is today. And that's why you've got, uh, I think I read something like 600,000 Venezuelans living in Ecuador, which is a small country. You've got well over a million living in Colombia. Uh, here in the U.S., you know, in Texas, you see, you know, every time I jump in an Uber, nine times out of ten, it's going to be a Venezuelan. Who used to work for... You know, it's coming from the middle class, doctor, lawyer, engineer, driving Uber here in the U.S. And yeah. so you have all these things kind of mixed in together, and that's kind of what's created this toxic brew of what Venezuela has become, unfortunately. Well, that's an incredibly helpful um, perspective on kind of the way that all developed. And I know I know it helps me, uh, especially because I, I tend to uh, assume that uh, all socialists are intention- and communists are intentionally trying to ruin things. But anytime I then get any deeper into a story, either whether that's about digging into one section of the USSR or digging into uh, the Castros or in this case Cuba, there's more to that story. I think that's that's really helpful to just kind of see Chavez as being shaped by Cuban influence into this direction, not not intentionally trying to ruin the Venezuelan economy, but certainly making steps in that direction one piece at a time. Well, let's let's shift gears a bit more towards the U.S. interaction with Venezuela today. My understanding is that uh, President Trump's administration has resisted uh, any efforts uh, or any any uh, yeah I guess any efforts in uh, to militarily intervene and take out the Maduro government and officially install the Guaido government. He's not President Trump is not looking to do that militarily. But instead, they've strengthened and increased the number of sanctions on the Venezuelan economy. Uh, so 
Uh, so let me ask you your thoughts on those sanctions. Uh, first off, do those sanctions matter? Uh, secondly, should we continue those sanctions? Should we increase those sanctions? Do those san- are those sanctions effective in any way? You know, I, I think um, uh, as a, I, I think the Trump administration has done the correct thing in sort of how it's applying sanctions as of now, right? I think military intervention would be the biggest mistake, both. Because unfortunately, you know, you, you, who would suffer under any military invention? It would be the average Venezuelan populace, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the military is in control of the state-run company. Um, the government is in control of the money, and so they would go. They would have somewhere else to go. You saw this in Bolivia when Evo Morales, you know, was sort of, you know, deposed. He was able to find a place to flee easily, right? So, yeah, military invention would be a massive mistake. But I think the Trump administration is using the sanction now, for example, especially targeting oil shipments, right? And so one of the things that Venezuela, the only lifeline they have, because they're not getting credit from the Central Bank in China anymore, they're not getting loans, they're getting a lot of support from the Russian oil companies who are starting to take over some of the projects. But the Trump administration is really targeting the oil shipments, um, trying to at least, you know. And uh, so this is the best thing the government can do. But the only problem is, is that one of the areas that the Trump administration has targeted is those shipments between Venezuela and Cuba, because Venezuela has been using Cuba almost sort of like a, a, a deposit for its oil shipments. And uh, and Venezuela still exports substantial amounts of oil, not as much as before at the peak period, but they still support, you know, the Cuban administration by or the Cuban government by uh, supplying it essentially cheap oil and free oil. And uh, and so that's what the administration, the U.S. administration has been really targeting. And uh, and I think that's the only way you can really sort of like put more of a stranglehold on the Maduro regime is by its lifeline, because it's the only really lifeline left to it in terms of money coming into the country. I mean, they've come out with this. I don't know. I have a friend of mine who traded Bitcoin or bit, what is it? Bitcoin, right? I, I don't know. I think so. Yeah. So much, right? I, that's one of the yeah, cryptocurrencies. So yeah. Yeah. So I have a friend of mine, they trade it and you know, they think that I, I just don't get it because I've really never studied it. Right. But the Venezuelan situation became so bad. So they came out with their own Bitcoin, you know, uh, the Petro, uh, just because there's no cash. And so now, once again, we're talking about an OPEC nation. We're talking about, the world's really, in terms of reserves, the wealthiest oil nation on the globe. And there's no cash. There's no money. It's been drained away by corruption, by mismanagement. And so, you know, I, I, even now, Maduro, you know, I, 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 always, I always say the problem with Venezuela is not so much socialism. Because it's really rentism. It, it's it's you know do you have this this concept of rentista the rental right you know, like the the government just you know a, a rental government you know a rentista government. So Venezuela has taken the idea of socialism and made it more folkloric and more nationalist, more populist, but easy to man, uh, to mismanage and manipulate. And so the money that comes in the country typically ends up in someone else's pocket, right? And uh, it's not being trickled down. And so now the government is relying on this petro. And they have unveiled it and this big could do, but, you know, has that changed the situation? No. All they can try to do is get people to invest in the petro. And what cash is coming into the country? Who knows where it's going? 
It's probably going into some black box. No one really knows. And so, you know, the oil exports going back, you know, is the only way that any administration can really kind of tighten the spigot on what's going into the country. So really then the, the sanctions, it sounds like you're suggesting, are an effective policy tool that is far short of military intervention, and the United States is not looking to uh, get involved militarily in Latin American politics, particularly in Venezuela. So th- these are an effective policy tool, then, that we should continue and, and use wisely. You know, they're effective and they're cheap for the U.S. administration. You know, uh, you just target, you know, the tankers that are transporting the oil, and that's what's, how it's been so far. And, um, you know, and, and it's and it's funny because, you know, for, for example, you know, there's this whole sort of like underground economy propping up the re- regime in, in Venezuela. Right. Uh, there's always speculation, you know, uh, I, I believe was it Maduro's one of his stepsons or someone in the family was was uh has been indicted for uh or not indi- i don't know i'm not sure that indicted but you know implicated in, in sort of like the drug trade right because you know drugs you know a lot of drugs pass through venezuela now and so you know i think the u.s administration is in a situation it can only target what it knows mm. but that whole sort of like underground economy that's propping up the machine regime drug trafficking uh uh, it, I was in Trinidad and Tobago not too long ago, for example, right? And so, uh, you know, documented photography, I was going to do something on, you know, steel drums, right? Because the steel drum orchestras are really big, right? So I'm going to these really poor, struggling neighborhoods. And before, you know, controlled by gangs, but before the gangs had machetes and knives and things like that, right? Now they've got these high-powered weapons because it's like corruption, right? And so uh, Venezuelan soldiers, right? are selling draw guns to gangs because they're hungry. They're, if you look at, go on YouTube, look at the Venezuelan National uh, Independence Day Parade, and you'll see how really skinny and hungry-looking these young soldiers' recruits look like, right? So they're selling equipment, military equipment, to the gangs. The gangs are taking the guns to Trinidad and Tobago and other places, right, and train the trading the guns for food, taking the food back to Venezuela and selling it illegal at a massive markup, right? And so you have these, and it's starting to spill over into like some of the other nearby regions, right? And so that's the U.S., there's no way the U.S. administration or any allied nation in the region can target, right? Mm -hmm. But at least oil shipments is the one thing that the administration can target and has been doing. And I do not see them backing down from that. I think the only misunderstanding that perhaps the government has and particularly Trump is his support of Guaido, uh, the current president. You know, he's a democratic socialist too. And so it's, it's not going to be like, you know, you know, uh, the, the leader of the national assembly, he's the leader of the national assembly. It's not like he's going to be bringing freedom and democracy to Venezuela either. That was actually, I'm glad, so glad you said that. That was my next question. Uh, my, for last episode I did, I interviewed, uh, Annalicia Varmonde Stoles, and, uh, she is a big fan of the opposition, and she saw, she described this as really a constitutional matter, or constitutional crisis yeah. for Venezuela. Uh, I had a friend at, uh, the school I teach at who, uh, his perspective was that Guaido is just another socialist. So this is yeah. really replacing one bad leader with another bad leader. Um, 
as a more educated opinion or, or person here on this matter, uh, what what's your take on Guaido? Is he in fact any different, or is he just going to be the next in line, next line, maybe a little bit more legal, but just another socialistic leader who's going to continue the same policies that have gotten Venezuela in this predicament? Yeah, and I think you know Guaido. I mean, it would be even worse to a certain degree, and I'm sure a lot of my Venezuelan friends would disagree with me on this, but. I think it would be worse just because of the sense that he does not have the political consensus, consensus that, for example, Maduro has. Maduro has the support of the military still. Uh, Maduro has the support of at least some of the economic managers. And I say that generously in the country, you know. But, you know, I think Guaido would be able to rule. Um, I, I think uh, the National Assembly is very factitious. Uh, uh, you really need to have an outsider. And he kind of portrays himself as an outsider, but he really isn't. You know, he's part of the Democratic Socialist Party. It's, uh, you know, some of these policies that, you know, um, and like I said, you know, it's, uh, these socialist policies perhaps work in a country like Denmark where you have transparency and governance and you, you can rely on commodity capitalism to fund socialist programs. Um, and so it, I, I do not see how Guaido could ameliorate the situation for Venezuela in the short term nor the long term. And particularly the fact, too, that I think that one of the things that I, I look at is the brain drain of the country, right? So you've got millions of Venezuela fleeing in search, in, in search of really a better life. Um, and so that means that the whole sort of like, you know, I'm, I'm not a really big free market kind of guy, right? But free market forces tend to help entrepreneurs found businesses prosper. And, you know, every time, every dollar that, you know, goes into a small business is duplicated, what, six or seven times throughout the chain of the local economy, right? So the more of a Guaido, what Venezuela needs is how do you get the brain drain to go back to Venezuela? You know, how do you get the, the people who can sort of like activate businesses? Uh, how do you get people who can activate growth? And I'm talking everything from the bakeries to the, the factories to, uh, uh, you know, in, endeavors like that. That's really what the country needs. Yeah, you, you need to sort of like clean the slate of the bad politics, the bad experience, mismanagement that the Chavez and Maduro regime are guilty of in the country. But that's what's really needed. And but I, you know, so I talked to Venezuela, right? So yeah, they they would love to go back. But the reality is, is that they start having kids here, right? Kids go to high school, junior high, they graduate. You know, it's we have my wife and I. We have this situation. We speak Spanish at home, and you know, you know, we always joke around that. You know, um, but my kids feel more American than they feel Argentina. Even the the ones who were born in Argentina, they feel more American. You know, this is. They speak in English, you know, they joke around in English, they argue in English, right? And uh, and so, you know, when we've talked about, you know, going back to Argentina, they're like, oh, God, please, no. It's the same situation with these Venezuelans, you know, they've set up Man. homes outside of the country and to get them back. And so, you know, I, I know it's going to sound very negative when I say this, but I see the future is very dark for Venezuela for the next generation or so, because the country is going to have to really rebuild a lot of these foundations from scratch. 
Um, I, 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 from everything you said, that seems to me to be the logical conclusion. It strikes me as if Venezuela is facing a current economic crisis that is making the country uh, unbearable to live in. And that economic crisis is coming. Uh, I, I'm really glad that you focused where you did today, because our last episode focused more on the political and kind of the, the top levels of society mm-hmm. and their problems. But you've you've suggested that there are equal problems on the, the lower levels of society as well. So between governmental uh, prevention of an economy working by nationalizing and co-opting property and, and businesses, that's a problem. Uh, but then corruption, even at the lowest levels of, um, use the phrase, express kidnapping and police corruption and inability to correctly determine uh, how to operate in the country with security of property and person, that means people, I would think, are looking for how do they live a good life somewhere else, which means Venezuela is facing an existential crisis, not just now, but 25, 50 years from now. Because when your the brightest people are heading out, and and then I mean that's uh, maybe maybe it, it might be too early, but I wonder if uh, from a century from now, Latin American historians will refer to this time period as the Venezuelan diaspora or something of that nature. No, no, I, 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 I agree with you one hundred percent because you know, and, and I guess one of the things I really want to hit hard home on is that just the generosity the warm-hearted nature of your typical Venezuelan, right? I remember when I was down there as a young journalist traveling around, and I didn't have a lot of money uh, doing a lot of freelance work. I remember I was in a little village one time, beautiful village out in the west, on, on, on the western coast near Colombia. And I uh, was a friend of mine, and this elderly grandmother just almost started crying. She's like, I just can't imagine what it must, how lonely it must be for you. It was near a holiday, right? You know, how lonely it's going to be for you, the holiday that you're not going to have anyone, you know, you're not going to have, be able to go see your mother and sit at the table with your family. I mean, and, and people, were, people were honest when they would show these sort of like very outpourings of support. There was never anything about, oh, you know, you're gringo. Hey, let me milk you. I will, you would only get that from the police, right? And people in political office, right? Oh but goodness. your typical Venezuelan, they were so kind nature. You know, I was, I was, I come from a very humble background in America, right? And so when I went overseas, I was pretty much living on my own means. And so I didn't have really any trust funds like some of my American friends did, you know, and parents didn't earn the money, you know, I got dysentery and I was literally on death's door. And, and it was two Venezuelan friends of mine who forced me to go to the doctor. And the doctor told me, he says, if you don't do anything in the next day or two, you're going to die. You know, and you look at the Civil War, dysentery killed a lot of people. And it still kills a lot of people in the developing world. I did not have the finances. I was not in this financial situation as a beginning journalist to pay for a doctor bill at a good hospital. And it was my friend Gloria. She, She pulled out her credit card and says, put it on this. We'll take care of it. You know? And so the generosity, that doesn't, you know, so it's funny when people people in church, you know, talk about the Good Samaritan. I know what it's like. Mm. I understand what it's like. And it was a Venezuelan friend. And Venezuelans were just very kind and generous people. But the last time I went there a few years ago, even that was being worn away. I think the brunt of crime, corruption, mm. political oppression has worn, worn the edges of this fantastic foundation of what the typical Venezuelan 
is like, it's just been worn down just by the, these forces. And and how do you rebuild that? How, how how do you how do you sort of like shore that up in, in, in a nation? And I think you know Venezuela is going to be a country. It's going to it's it's going to be sort of like a country emerging from a civil war, mm. like neighboring Colombia. And and once again, you know, it's how, how do you do that? You know, and how many people right now are suffering from was it uh, uh, post traumatic stress syndrome in the country of just what they're facing every day? And this is the last thing I say, you know, on this. I don't want to go on too much. I know you're short in time, but that was at the library. You know, here near our house, you know, the libraries have a little bookshop, right, where they sell used books. And so I always like to go there. And uh, some gentleman in there is 90, he's 95 years old, 90, uh, you know, I'm sorry, 93, 95, something like that. I forget what it was, but he was old, like in the 90s, right? Long, and sure. had a Venezuelan accent. I heard him talking to his daughter. So I started talking to him, right? And he was telling me that as a three-year-old child in Spain, his family fled the Civil War for a better life in Venezuela. Oh, my goodness. And he had lived Venezuela his entire life. Venezuela, in his mind, was the country that gave him refuge. They gave his family refuge from the bitter Civil War in Spain. But he was telling me that as an elderly man, trying to survive in an environment like Venezuela's today, he said it was too much. He was saying that he would go down to the most super, when, when they would have food in the supermarket, because he lived on the countryside, he got robbed walking home. Every time he would be able to get some food, he would get robbed. And to the point where he finally had to ask his daughter to get him to America. And I thought, this is really the tragedy of what's happened with Venezuela. A country that once offered a home to refugees, and that's why you have so many Argentines, Chileans, Spaniards, Portuguese from dictatorships in the Spanish and Portuguese-speaking world. These same people now have to flee. At one time, Venezuela offered refuge, you know, refuge to Cubans, and the same Cubans that fled to Venezuela are now flying. You know, well, most of them have fled to the U.S. And so that kind of puts the scope of its history, but also just the tragedy on a very understandable human level of what's happening. I, I think that's a that's a wonderful wonderful closing note. I think uh, uh, Tom, I so appreciate how you've helped put a face on this for for our listeners. Uh, and I, I know I've I, I don't follow your work exclusively or, or, or to any great detail, but I, I've what the photographs that you've taken that I've seen either on Facebook or on a couple of your websites. Uh, you you tend to focus on people and honestly their their faces is at least the impression I have. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but the impression yeah. I have is that, that that's a focus of yours. And I think it's very easy for our, our listeners to this episode will likely by the time this airs, they'll have read the Brookings Institute report of numbers with 4.7 million Venezuelans living in exile and uh, an economy that has contracted by 65%. And and those numbers are great for debaters making their arguments, but they don't really conceptualize the tragedy of going through that, or the fact that for every for for all the fact that Venezuela has this incredibly high crime rate, there are ordinary people who want to live their lives together in ordinary ways and simply be good people who are caught in the midst of these awful circumstances. And I, I just so appreciate how you've helped us kind of see that today. 
Well, no, I, I, th- thank you for that. You know, and plus, you know, I tell people in my day job, you know, when they ask me what I know, and I said, well, look, I'm the only person who's ever been hugged by Hugo Chavez, but also asked to take a selfie with Dick Cheney. So, you know, I <laughs> Well, as long as you don't game, go hunting you know? with Dick Cheney and get shot, I mean. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, uh, Tom, I don't want to. I, I do want to make sure we give you an opportunity to explain kind of your work online. Where 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 can people find your photography and your writing if they want to follow your work and uh, see more of what you do? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got my uh, um, my photography Facebook page, Tom Darren Liske Photography, and um, and I do tend to do stuff for different people and stuff like that. So you know, um, just my Instagram account, you know, at a lot of the the documentary stuff ends up there at like uh, Tom Darren dot L, and just um, and anywhere else, you know, uh, uh, Literary Life and some other places. And so um, you know, I'm I'm always out there. So I'm trying, trying to, trying to, trying to, trying to do the hustle, and, and I appreciate your comments about the faces because to me that's you know the geography of the soul, you know, um, mm. uh, try, trying to understand who we are better, and especially particularly you know, I tend to take things as a, as, as a Christian, as, as a believer, that uh, I, I want to show the human side uh, of things, and I think hopefully it makes a connection and, and at least gets us thinking about things. Wonderful, thank you so much for coming on the program today, Tom. This has been a yeah. great discussion. Well, thanks a lot for giving me the opportunity to talk, and I uh, appreciate it. And, uh, and I'd love following the podcast, too. So you all are doing great work. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for another episode of What's the Res? My name is Josh Herring. My guest this uh, last uh, hour or so has been Tom Darren Litsky, uh, photographer, photojournalist, and a longtime writer about events in Venezuela. We hope this episode has been a help to you as you are preparing for the January Public Forum uh, tournaments. And if you want to give us any feedback about this episode or send us in any questions you might have or let us know if uh, really what arguments you want to run about this, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us in a variety of ways. You can reach us over email at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstherez. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit with the handle at whatstherez underscore. And just in case, as you're looking at the holiday season and uh, you may have a, a dearth of tournaments and you might want to stay in practice for flowing or for writing rebuttal speeches or just generally you want to listen to more debates, you can access our premium channel of debates at whatstherez.podbean.com slash premium, or you can go to our website, www.whatstherez.com. Ethan's got it all set up as a banner there. You can just click on it. It'll take you right to where you can get access to those. We do. We release one debate per month where we record a live debate between educated non-experts on the topic, and uh, we, we hope to uh, increase people's excitement and interest about debate through those, so we'd love to have you participate. You can access those for $3 a month or for $30 for the year. Thank you again for joining us for this episode, and until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. <laughs>